Welcome to the Etobicoke Historical Society's monthly oral history podcast. This podcast is one of a series of interviews of senior Etobicoke residents in the 1980s. The interview tapes were recently discovered in the local history room at Richview Public Library. We would like to thank the Toronto Public Library for giving them back to us so they could be made into these podcasts. These oral histories are a valuable and unique view into the history of Etobicoke in the early part of the 20th century, as seen through the personal experiences of local residents. We will be presenting a different interview each month. We hope you enjoy them. August 26th, and I'm speaking to Pat Ziegler in a home at 27 Birchview Crescent in the High Park area. Now, you were born in Mimico? Yes. Now, where exactly? Well, I was born in a little cottage on the lake shore between Burlington Road and Albert Avenue, where that block of storms is now. So how big of a cottage was it? Well, wasn't much of a cottage, but had a huge kitchen with nine doors in it. I don't know why there were nine doors, but the property ran right from what was then Burlington Lane straight through to the highway. Let me talk a bit about about the uh, the cottages. This was the kitchen in the center of the house? No, it was at the back, and it, uh, we had a both a well and a cistern in the backyard, very dangerous. Thank goodness we never had to use the well because we did have running water. But, uh, what else? Was, okay, it was, um, would you be growing your own vegetables on the on the Oh, land? we weren't very much, my dad and mother were not very much for gardens. We had pretty good tomatoes, I think. <laughs> And an awful lot of grass to cut. But who, who did the grass cutting? Oh, Danny did. Yeah, yards and yards and yards of it. And uh, people next door were the ones that had beautiful gardens. Who were they? Uh, that was Mr. and Mrs. L. J. West, Lou West, and the three boys. And their, their yard also went, their property also went from Burlington Lane to the highway. And they, theirs was big enough to have a tennis court in it. I don't know what, I guess they used it, I don't remember. Well, what's it, what type of a surface would it have? Oh, grass. No, certainly. And they have lines marked on? Yeah, and a net. I guess they, uh, I was too young to be included. <laughs> I'm sure they used it or they wouldn't have been bothered with it. Yeah. What other buildings would have, or people would have lived in your immediate neighborhood? Mm. Not very many. We had a big field to the east of us that belonged to Harry McGee and our cottage we rented from him. And other than that, uh, Gosh, there wasn't very much for the for the first few years that I remember. Is there anything on the other side of uh, Lakeshore Road? 
Oh, yes, Harry McGee's home. A beautiful home. I think they finally originally at one time called it Kilcooley or Kilgooley, something like that. It was a magnificent estate. Went right down to the lake on the south side of the highway. Now, um, you, you lived in this cottage year round. Oh, yeah, it was a brick cottage. I don't know how warm it was. <laughs> it was brick and uh, had a big fireplace, not in the living room, but in the dining room. That's where they put fireplaces in them days. Was it uh, coal heating? Oh, yeah. Hot air. What, what, what did your uh, father do? Oh, well, he worked uh, for um, marine supply companies, two of them in those days. Well, the first one was John Lecky Limited, and the second one was um, J.A. Sides and Company, which is still functioning. So he was a salesman, or...? No, he was in the office, I think, in both cases. I'm not just sure what he did. Now, well... Well, we moved to Vancouver when I was eight, just for a, a year, and then came back. And that was with another marine supply firm? Well, that was for, uh, with Sides, and, uh, but we only stayed a year. You would go across on train, I would imagine. Oh, we, oh, we went in great style. We were sent by the company, and we had a, a drawing room. My brother, Bill, was about nine months old, and oh, we ate in splendor in the in the dining car, and the, the waiters with their white coats and the crystal glasses and the whole bit was great. We didn't come back that way. <laughs> we didn't have that much room coming back, I tell you. Now, how long of a trip would that be? Do you remember? Uh, I think it was uh, five days and four nights. Quite the, quite the experience for someone who was eight years old. Yeah, and I can remember um, going through the Rockies and um, they stopped the train various places to show us bits and pieces of things. And uh, we had Bill out on the observation platform. And I can still remember his little face was all covered with soot from the, from the coal that was blowing back from the engine on the train. And they also showed us the, going through the tunnel, I've forgotten which pass it is, where you can see we were sitting on the, on the observation platform and you could see the engine coming through the other end of the tunnel. The, I think you still can, but I've forgotten which. Now, as a, as a young girl growing up in, in Mimico, what, uh, what sort of things would you do to, to, for games? And oh. I was the world's worst athlete. I never played anything. <laughs> I suppose hopscotch and skipping and stuff like that when we were little. Well, did you read a lot then, or? Oh yes, I read a terrific amount, and um, did a good deal of walking between there and the public library. <laughs> what sort of what sort of books would you be reading? Well, heck, girls' books, I suppose, Anne of Green Gables type thing. 
the mystery stories. Now, would your, your, your parents wouldn't uh, have restricted the type of books you would read at all? No, but the librarian would. <laughs> I mean, there was just no way I'd ever get anything that I couldn't, that I shouldn't read by going to the Mimical Public Library. <laughs> I don't know whether they ever had any that were not fit for my tender years. Do you remember who the librarian was at? Uh... Oh, yes. What was that? Surely somebody else can tell you that. She was, uh, she was there for years. She standard sort of was your impression of what a library is? Oh, yeah, she was a little gray-haired, dumpy woman. Oh, her name's just on the tip of my tongue. And strict. Wow. Nobody raised a voice above the whisper. How many times did you get kicked out? <laughs> I was a good little girl, unfortunately. I was too scared to be anything else but good. Uh, would you, uh, for instance, uh, go swimming in the Mimico Creek or...? No, we went swimming in the lake and it was cold. You'd get into there, in there and two minutes you'd be blue up to the hips. <laughs> Not much in the way of beaches. A few, there were a few sandy beaches. Well, you see, I lived east of um, Superior Avenue. And I guess we swam down at the foot of Superior Avenue quite a bit. Was there a little public park there? Or? Well, there was a beach of sorts, and just west of that was where uh, Grandpa Hutchins had his cottage, you know, and so did Uncle Alf. Well, his was a full, his was filled full home, and all, all his family were born brought up right there. Just, just west of Superior Avenue, right on the lakefront. So you would go there a lot? No, I don't think I did. I never knew my those cousins very well. But uh, I used to meet Uncle Alf on the streetcar, and we'd have a, a talk. But uh, no, I didn't. We didn't uh, mingle very much somehow. Now, what uh, what school would you go to when you're? Yeah, for elementary school. Oh, uh, what is now the John English School, Mimico Public School, and the old school that had the the Belfry, and John English was the principal. Do you remember? Himself. Uh, do you remember John English at all? Oh, you bet I do. Uh, he was very strict, but my gosh, I thought he was a nice man. Maybe because I was such a good little girl, <laughs> I didn't get in trouble. Well, I can remember one morning something went wrong and I wandered into the school about 10 o'clock and there was Mr. English, he was a tall man, standing right in front of me and I was shivering like boots and he said, good morning, Patty, I hope you had a good sleep <laughs> and that's all that was ever said. I was sure I was going to get, you know what? Get the old strap. Yeah. You remember anyone ever getting the strap? Oh, uh, I know they did. I'm sure they did. Especially for um, 
setting the fire alarm off when there was no fire. Anybody who did that got strapped, for sure. Did that happen often? Or? No, but it happened. So how, how would you get back and forth to school in, in your home? Well, we walked, of course. And it was all along the, the Mimico Creek and past the library. It was cold. Now, uh, did, did you go on to high school? Sure. I went to Mimico High School. There were eight rooms in it then. Can you tell me a bit more about it, like some of your teachers and classes? And oh, well, of course, there was Mr. Glenn, the principal. By the way, I lived on Eastbourne Crescent, and so did Mr. Glenn. And Mrs. Glenn still does, of course. But, oh boy, we didn't have much to do, you know, except to have parties among ourselves. And everybody knew everybody in a, in a neighborhood like that. And you know that Mr. Glenn knew exactly who was whose boyfriend or girlfriend. He knew where the parties were, how long they lasted, what time we came home at night, <laughs> I tell you. And uh, I remember Miss Weir and Miss Franklin. Miss Weir taught English and history, Miss Franklin taught Latin. They went to visit uh, one of the, the students, Jim Sutherland, who was in the hospital, and the two teachers went to visit him, and his sister, Dot, was one of my best friends. We went around together, and uh, they were telling Jim all about parties and what was going on. The teachers knew, <laughs> and one of them, I've forgotten which one, said, uh, and uh, Patty went with George Pennell, and uh, Dorothy went with Claude Farrell. And the other teacher said, no, that's, that's not right. It was the other way around. <laughs> but it was. <laughs> Can you imagine today a, a thing like that happening? Would you, so you had a very, would you have a very sort of close relationship with your teachers? Some of them, some of them. I still feel very close to Miss Weir, and she's, well, anybody can tell you about Miss Weir. Well, can you tell me a bit, bit more about her? Well, she's, I guess she must be 90-ish now, and, um, well, she was, I think, the best teacher that ever walked. Why, why is she so good? Well, I don't know, she was, um, she was strict, but uh, I don't think there were many people who, who didn't feel that she was just giving us what we ought to have in, a, in a, an interesting and informative way, and we remembered it because of the way she presented it and the way she made us work like our <laughs> how, how would she present the material? Would she stand up in the front of the class and just talk, or...? Oh, she made us do a lot. Uh, we had, in English, we had um, debates, and we had to um, present 
oral compositions and so forth at the front of the class, and we had to do our, a lot of preparing for them. I remember one debate. We had uh, preparation for war as a guarantee for peace. And I got the darn title backwards, and I thought it was preparation for war is no guarantee for peace. So I spent hours down in the, in the stacks among the newspaper clippings in the, in the old museum. No, the, the reference library. And I prepared the wrong part of the debate. So when we appeared at the front of the classroom, we had both prepared the same side. So I was sent back, and we did it again the next week. <laughs> but that's the kind of research we had to do. I, oh, I can remember spending hours in those, in those newspaper. What do you call them? The morgue, you know, under down cellar under the in the reference library, and we were expected to do it. Would would most of the teachers do it like that? I don't remember having to work that way for, uh, for, for the others, no. Most of the rest did teach out of the textbooks pretty well. Oh, there was Miss Foreman, Betty Foreman, Bessie Foreman. She came after Miss Franklin, who was a beautiful woman. Oh, boy, was she good looking. Well, anyway, Miss Foreman, and anybody can tell you about her, she was, a, she was dedicated and uh, rather weepy. I can remember she used to burst into tears if, uh, if the class didn't behave itself. Mostly they did behave, believe me. <laughs> but she taught uh, Latin and ancient history, and her, her knowledge was absolutely phenomenal. We had a little teeny thin book of ancient history. I wish I still had that copy because we had so many marginal notes. She wasn't the kind of person who believed you should never put a pencil in a, note, in a textbook. We had every page underlined and annotated all down, all the margins across the top and the bottom. She rewrote that textbook two or three times. So we all passed our ancient history. <laughs> now, uh, while you were growing up, there was, uh, was during the time of prohibition. Mm -hmm. um, do you remember anything about about prohibition years, temperance movement, for instance? No, not very much. I knew that uh, there were a good a goodly number of bootleggers around. I don't think I better mention any names though. <laughs> uh, there was one very well-known one who lived very close to us uh, when we were, lived on Eastbourne Crescent. And he was a good friend of all my dad's friends, so I don't think they ever uh, suffered too much during pro Prohibition. 
fact, I know darn well they didn't. And uh, when it was all over, this particular man uh, uh, went to work for the Liquor Control Board <laughs> and was with them for a number of years, I do believe. You're mentioning a story about, uh, about uh, church, I think about the thinking of vow or something on temperance. Oh, yeah. Well, I don't know how old I was then, but not very old, maybe 11, 12, around there. And it was, uh, I don't know whether it was before or after um, church union, but um, anyway, we were all brought up out of the kindergarten, in uh, at least the Sunday school, into the body of the church. And um, the superintendent was in charge of the meeting. Now, there may have been some outside temperance people involved in it. I suspect there were. Uh, do you want me to mention his name? Well, I think it was Amos Waits who was the superintendent. He was for many years, I know. And that Sunday school assembly was asked to take the pledge. And everybody did, except one other girl, a red-headed gal called Margaret Bricknell, and me. And we decided we probably would take a drink before we died, so we refused to sign the pledge. And we weren't very popular after that. <laughs> Did a lot of your friends bother you? To oh no! About that? No, no, they were uh, they were just astonished and, and disapproved and said, "How could you?" But oh, no, it wasn't that big a deal. But it was funny at the time. Now, what uh, your church? Would there be they put on a lot of social events? Not that I remember. No, they weren't like the um, the Anglican Church. Uh, they had a very, the Anglican Church had a very active young people society. Now maybe ours did, I'm not sure, but I don't recall too much of, maybe I wasn't much of a churchgoer. Now you were talking earlier about uh, all your teachers knowing about who went to the parties and how long they were, went on for that. Uh, yeah. Tell me something about, about, about your parties you go to as a teenager? Yeah. So. Well, I mean, we just went to people's houses and played records and danced and stuff like that. What sort of, what sort of music would you listen to then? Oh, well, all the, the pop tunes of the 1920s and early 30s. So it would be... Do you remember any names at all? Or? Oh, yeah, I suppose. Um, Gal Lombardo was a big man then, and uh, uh, oh, what was his name? You know, uh, St. Louis Blues. Louis Armstrong. Yeah. Louis, no, no. no. Um, oh, my mind's a blank. Anyway, uh, there were a lot of blues around then. No, Louis Armstrong was later. The, uh, so how long would a party go on till? Oh, not much more than one o'clock. And uh, 
I, uh, my friend, uh, Marjorie Smart, her father was so strict that he was an Englishman. The only way she could stay to the end of a party was to stay at my house overnight because her, her curfew was so early in the evening she couldn't get, she couldn't meet it and still stay to the end of the party. So she used to come to my house and sleep all night. Leading people astray. <laughs> now, how often would these parties happen? Oh, I, I have no idea, Jim, maybe a couple, once every couple of weeks or so. And I remember one thing in the, um, in the wintertime, we used to go to Bargaining where the, um, at the Humber Valley Golf Club, what used to be. And that was the first time I ever saw anybody on skis. It was, it was George Pennell I mentioned previously. He was very, very well known around the district. Uh, he was one of the leading lights at the high school and uh, he later became a very well orthopedist and was head of surgery at St. Joseph's. And his, his wife, Margaret Heather, was one of my best friends. And she lived at, ah, on Nimico Avenue, right opposite the church. And of course, her mother was a Hendry. He was one of the, as you know, Anyway, George Pennell was the first guy I ever saw on skis and scared the bejabers out of me, I can tell you. I don't know when that would be. It would be somewhere around 1930, 31. Now, uh, did you, your education finish after, at high school or did you go on to no, university? No, I went to university. I went to Victoria College and uh, then on to what was then OCE, Ontario College of Education. So did you commute every day or did you live downtown? You bet I commuted. We all did. Uh, well, not many people had the opportunity of living in residence, but it was a heck of a trip along the lake shore and up Roncesville along Bloor or, or up Bay Street. Now, um, what, when you went through to, to get your teacher's degree, teaching degree uh, yeah. from OCE, um, what sort of, uh, do you think that, that prepared you for, for teaching properly or did it leave a lot of room for surprises? Uh, I thought, for many years, I thought that uh, it was good, very good. But um, I taught up in Cobalt for five years, you know. And uh, uh, I taught commercial up there. I took uh, honors in French and Spanish, but I never taught because there were French teachers under every bush and tree, and <coughs> nobody wanted Spanish. So I took the commercial option, and that's what I taught. Well, after a good many years, after my family was growing up and I was living back here, I went back to Mimico High School to teach 
for two years. And it was then that I began to realize that teachers in um, technical subjects, all technical subjects, really needed practice in the field, in offices, in factories, in, in places where they had to do it and not just talk about it. And today it's, it's no longer true, the old cliche about them as can do and them as can't teach. <laughs> A teacher has to be able to do. And uh, I wasn't able. I, I never had to earn my living being in an office. And I should have. I would have been far more valuable. I think uh, now, nowadays a great many teachers do have that practical experience. And uh, they sure need it. I needed it. Now, um, you were uh, uh, still sort of, I guess you'd be in your late teens and in your 20s um, during the Depression. You bet. <laughs> Can you tell me a bit about some of the things you saw? Do uh, you remember about the Depression, things that stick out in your mind? No. Uh, I guess I wasn't very badly touched by it. Um, if I had a, a dollar in my pocket, I spent it. And if I had a dime, I spent that, you know. Um, I always took my lunch all the way through university and OCE. Never, never ate out. Um, lots of times I walked from the Humber home because the uh, at that time, they they changed the fare system, and we had to pay we had to pay uh, an extra fare. So, oh, was it the home? I guess it was Sunnyside. Yeah, I'm not sure, but uh, it was a long walk, and if the car fare was running running low, well, we walked. How about uh, at uh, your home? Would there be a lot of um, unemployed people coming, stopping by for looking for work or meals? I don't remember, Jim. I really don't. Um, I know that we got by on, I never remember, starving to pieces. I don't know what we ate, but uh, we managed, and I think my dad had some employment all during that depression. He worked uh, for a while as a secretary for uh, Dr. Forbes Godfrey, who was the Minister of Health. And he worked on apartment buildings for a while. So he was... This is the Queen's Park. Yeah. Do you remember much about uh, Dr. Godfrey? Would you meet him often? Or? Oh gosh, he brought me out. He brought me into the world. And uh, yes, his 
his family and mine were, I guess, about as close as any two families. What sort of a man was he? Very handsome man. I, I don't know how many people knew him, actually. Um, I was very little. Uh, I wasn't very old when he died, I guess. I was in my teens. I didn't see him that much. Um, he, uh, when he died, he had, I think, the largest general practice in Ontario. And um, I understand that at one time, uh, it was he who um, promoted the idea of iodized salt and the use of iodine for the treatment of goiter. And I think he was one of the ones who, who got that business started about the iodine and the salt and so forth. Do you remember any sort of the businesses, uh, any of the stores in, in Mimico? Oh, sure, there was Archie Norris's grocery store and uh, Martin Collette, the druggist. I don't remember it, but my dad was supposed to have met me at the gate. We had a gate in the along the fence in the cottage, and I'd go down to the gate and meet him when he got off the Mimico car, and he'd take me up to Martin Collette's to buy me an ice cream cone in the summer. Uh, my dad also knew um, Morden Nielsen, one of the ice cream Nielsens, and apparently I was so nuts about ice cream that he always promised me that someday he would take me down to Nielsen's factory and let me have a bath in ice cream. <laughs> he never did. However, uh, those two, I think, uh, Collette's and, uh, and Archie Norris's were the, the two I remember most vividly. And later on, I've forgotten who had the drugstore, but Oh, it was a wonderful meeting place. In those days, you could go in there to the drugstore. Oh, who the heck ran it then? And you could play records. You could play records by the hour. Pick out your own records and play them and then decide whether you wanted to buy them or not. And it didn't much matter whether you bought them. And it was a wonderful way to, to spend a couple of hours, meet your friends there, and decide who had enough money to buy a record. <laughs> but uh, that was, that was uh, quite, quite an experience that uh, the kids nowadays just don't get. I don't know what it did to the records, but nobody seemed to mind. <laughs> the old 78s. Now, would there be any sort of a door-to-door -door salesman coming through, through your area? Well, Fuller Brush men, of course, and uh, the Rag and Bones men. Yeah, the, I don't know, I guess, I can't remember any other name for them. They used to come along with a horse and, and wagon, and you could hear them for blocks away.
you gave them old clothes and things like that. Yeah, that's great. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to the Etobicoke Historical Society's Oral History Podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, be sure to subscribe and like. If you wish to learn more about the work of our society, be sure to visit www.etobicokehistorical.com. See you next month.